As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, um, your word is a delight to us. We're a people blessed. We're a people blessed to have a God who so loves us that he communicates clearly to us, even in a book. That we can have, we're grateful for the days in which we live so we can have this before us in a variety of ways, but now we come as we worship to hear. Because we know when we hear this word read, we're hearing the voice of God. So please speak to us. Draw us to yourself. Work in us in such a way that we'll turn from whatever isn't of you to turn to you completely. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn um, to the Old Testament, the little book of Ruth. I want to read chapter 1. The book of Ruth, chapter 1, please. This is the word of the Lord, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you and your people. But, but Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back. My daughters, go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do 
Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also of anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And then together we say, You haven't forgotten. So proud of you. Way to go. Way to go. Now, I want, if God will help me, to start for the next number of weeks this little book called Ruth. And you might want to say, well, why this? And I would simply say, of course, because it's in the Bible. Uh, so we're safe. And you might say, well, why, why this one in particular, of all the things I could have chosen from which to start on this Sunday? And, and, and I never really know exactly. But to simply say this, number one, it's been on my mind. Number two, a good friend gave me a commentary on this little book uh, from by an author that I like to read. And so that entertained me. So I bought a few more and began to think it through uh, once again. I think it was 1994, before some of you were born, that I preached through this the last time um, here. But the Old Testament, you see, is important for us. God could have waited until the incarnation to write anything, but he didn't. He gave us preparation for that, and we find a number of indicators as to why he did that. For instance, in 1 Corinthians and chapter 10, the apostle cites Old Testament events, and he puts it like this in verse 6. He says, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might desire evil as they did, then verse 11. Now these things happened to them as examples, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He says, listen, we've been given all of this to be an example for us, a warning for us. Don't go the way they did. But also encouragement for us to when they went the right way, go that way. To understand that God is with you. And when trials, when difficulties, when temptations come, he'll be with you to help you. And then in Romans in chapter 15 and um, verse 4, we have this. Paul says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 
And so he laid out all that comes before Matthew, all before the Incarnation, all before the New Testament. And he says, I want you to read this so you'll have hope. Why? So you'll see the faithfulness of God. You'll see how he moved in particular ways, you see, and how he brought all of his promises to fruition in Jesus. And so, so this will give you hope so that you can enjoy, <clears throat> excuse me, this benediction in the middle of Romans chapter 15, where the apostle writes, <clears throat> May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may have hope. So when you're reading through the Old Testament, you should be looking for instruction, for examples, and you should be looking for hope that God would give you, hope to encourage you to persevere. And we also know as we read through the Old Testament that that God lays out for us, by way of illustration, often concepts that are important for us to really understand the gospel. That's why one uh, writer on the book of Ruth entitles his commentary, The Gospel According to Ruth. And what we'll find here are shadows, if you will, echoes of the gospel. And so all throughout the Old Testament, we see that. I mean, how do we learn about the whole idea of substitutionary atonement? Well, we learn about it in a variety of ways. You remember that that situation with Abraham and Isaac. God had, been, God had promised Isaac a land and descendants. It didn't happen for a while. Uh, finally, Isaac was born. As Isaac grew up, God calls I, uh, Abraham to take Isaac and to sacrifice him. Now, that gives all of us the willies when we hear about that. But understand that Isaac was the safest person on the planet that day, right? He wasn't going to die. If Abraham disobeyed, he wasn't going to die. And when Abraham obeyed, God stayed his hand. He said, no, 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 no. And what did God do? He said, oh, there's a, there's a ram. There's an animal over there. I want you to take that one. Instead of this one. And then Passover. This lamb that was slain. So that the firstborn would be spared. The lamb of God. Who takes away the sins of the world. You, You see that? It builds up all throughout the Old Testament. So by the time we get to the new. And we see clearly all that it pointed to. We go, oh yes. This is what all that. All that was about. And so as we come to this book of Ruth, what we should be looking for, shadows of the gospel, we should be looking uh, to understand better what it means to repent of our sins, what it means to be converted to faith in Jesus, what it means to be redeemed. All those themes we'll find in this little story of this particular family. Uh, but there's something else, and I think this is really, if I have to confess, and I do, I don't actually. But I love to use the word confess because then you really listen. You think, what's he going to say? It's not that kind of confession. But, but, but if I could to share, I think what really drew me to Ruth at this particular time is that as I read the newspaper and I think about our lives, it's difficult to see in What we observe, and he wrote, where's this headed? Is God doing anything? And what we'll find as we tell ourselves this story over and over again is that though life seems really mundane and life seems really to be daily and decisions are made and actions are taken, 
that God is really up to something. And that something is a good something. So just in these last number of weeks, I've been just sort of rehearsing all of this in my mind, this book of Ruth, this story of this family. And it always, at the end, brings a smile to my face, no matter what's in the news, no matter what's happening, no matter how mundane my life seems to be at the moment. Do I order this? Or do I order that? Do I get this? Do I go there? Do I do this? Do we decide this? Whatever that is, I go, oh, yes. He's up to something. And that something is good. Now, it's important to know that this is a, a story. We call these Bible stories, and, and they're true stories. But, but when we read something like Ruth, what we realize is the purpose in ancient Israel was for the Israelites, for the people to tell them this, themselves this story all the time, to tell it to their children. And as they would, they would, they would more deeply understand who they were because they belonged to God and to understand him, <clears throat> him better. And we can trust it because, you see, every storyteller has an agenda. On my vacation, <clears throat> Karen often says, no theology books. So I have to sneak them. <laughs> but my cover is always just reading other novels. And so I, I, I did. I, I read a number of novels. One took place uh, around the time of the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, and, uh, and I kept asking myself, is that really true? Did that really happen? Uh, did people really think that way? Well, was that really how it all worked out? And so I had to Google a bunch. Uh, to refresh my memory on this. But we can trust this narrator. We can trust this storyteller. These facts, these events are not only true, not only did they happen, but, but the points he's making are really true, really reliable, really. He says, you can bank on this. Because in a sense, this one who tells this story is a prophet of God because he's speaking God's truth in God's way on behalf of God. And so we can trust it. And so we go to this and we play it. And I like to think of Ruth as kind of a living parable. You know, Jesus told parables and they, they stick with us and we can remember them. In fact, as I was praying with you the prayer of confession this morning, I thought, oh, I should have read the parable of the prodigal son. Because when I think of Ruth, I think of that, and I'll tell you that in a minute. So the setting here is just to, to get grip on the story. We really have to do that. We really have to understand uh, this story. And, and, and like the parables of Jesus, oftentimes there are cultural references that we might not be uh, familiar with. And we really need to pay attention to various details as this story unfolds. For, us. for instance, it begins by saying it took place in the days of the judges. Now, I don't know what that means for you, but for an Israelite, they would, they would know judges. You, you know, it's a book in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth. I remember as a kid memorizing the book of the Bibles, wondering what Ruth did that Joshua had to judge her. Then I realized that wasn't what that was about. But the days of the judges, it, it takes place then. And, and the days of the judges were tumultuous, turbulent, violent times. Um, God had made a covenant with his people. And you remember Moses took them out of Egypt through the wilderness time, right up to this land of promise. Joshua took them in. They conquered the land, divided the land, and the people settled. 
And then was this time of the judges where these um, rulers, chieftains of particular local areas would rise up from time to time to deliver the people. But God had promised through Moses, you can read this, especially at the end of Deuteronomy, and he said, listen, if you're faithful to me, I'll bless you. I'll bless you in every way. Because you see, what the picture that we were given there in this land of promise is, is in a sense, this is what the new heavens and the new earth will look like, this great blessing. The presence of God living among you, a faithful people and a prosperous people in every way because God is with you. But if you're unfaithful, you see, then I'll remove my blessing and you'll experience this, this curse. So, so be faithful, life, unfaithful, death. And if you find yourselves then in a time of unfaithfulness and the difficulties come, then repent of your sins, God says, and I'll heal you and I'll restore you. And what we see in the judges is that that cycle takes place in their lives. In fact, the most telling of all the verses, I suppose, is the last one. So if you open to Ruth, just turn back a page. In Judges chapter 21, verse 25, and we have it. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so you read the book of Judges with that in mind. Everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes. They're not following the Lord. So what we find is a, a time of unfaithfulness, a time of the, 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 the discipline, the judgment, if you will, of God upon the people in, in various kinds of ways. And then there's a sense of repentance of the people. At least they, they realize the error of their ways. They, they at least appear as if they turn back to God. And so God sends a judge, a deliverer, to come and deliver them. And we see that over and over and over again. But, but as the book of Judges progresses, and I might do Judges next, so just be prepared. Um, as the book of Judges progresses, we find in the latter part of it that it makes you shudder to read. And you think, how could that be going on in this land of promise? So, so that's the time. And, and, and so what we find in, 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 in this little story is in the midst of all of that and the whole of the nation and all that's going on over these decades, what we see is that God zooms in on this one family. He said, let me show you something. Let me show you something. Something else, something you wouldn't have imagined, something you wouldn't have seen there. Let me show you something and teach you something in the midst of this. And, and there was this famine in the land. So we know the time was a time in Bethlehem where these folks resided. There was a time when uh, the people had been unfaithful to God. That's why there was a famine. In the days of ancient Israel, in that covenant, uh, there was that kind of relationship between faithfulness and, and uh, blessing and unfaithfulness and no blessing at all. Well, it wasn't that automatic, but over time, that was the pattern so much in our lives. And so a famine in the land. And, and so this family, headed by a man named Elimelech, whose name means, my God is king, and this woman named Naomi, whose name means pleasant, evaluate the situation with their sons. And they see there's no food in 
Bethlehem, which is an ironic thing because the name Bethlehem means house of bread. So there's no bread in the house. And so what are they going to do? Now, now they think the most sensible thing to do, responding to their senses, is to go where there's food. And in one sense, we can hardly blame them. I mean, that's the sense of it. And so they leave there and go to a place called Moab. Now, uh, emigration is a courageous thing and can be. A noble thing. Most of us, if we trace our families back, uh, can find someone who came from another country. Uh, very few of us native to this land. So it's, it's a noble thing. But in their case, perhaps not so much. Sinclair Ferguson puts it like this. He says, true emigration in times of famine or religious persecution has a long and honorable history. It's not only an understandable, but sometimes a courageous and costly move. I think of the little bands of pilgrims who in the 17th century sailed 3,000 miles across the powerful Atlantic Ocean in boats a little bigger than a house in the hope of finding freedom to worship and provide for their families. But for Naomi and her family, emigration involves turning their backs upon the Lord's word and his summons to repentance. You see, the Lord said, when you find yourself in a time of famine, repent. When you find yourself in a time of famine, ask in your own heart, am I living in a way that's pleasing to the Lord? Am I trusting him or am I trusting myself? But for Naomi and her family, emigration involves turning their backs upon the Lord's word and his summons to repentance. Hence, instead of seeking grace, uh, Elimelech's little family did, uh, in, in, thus, instead of seeking grace, Elimelech's little family did he make the decision himself or in consultation with Naomi? Or did she perhaps even drive him to it? We don't know. This little family decide if God will not provide what they need for their lives, they will take it for themselves. And they'll go to live for a while. One translation. So they think there's alien residence in, in Moab. You see, this land was very important. This is the promised land. This is the land that said, God God said, live here and I'll live among you and I'll bless you here. And you can just get this sense, can't you? Can't you feel the wind blowing cold? Can't you see things going the wrong way? Can't you see, oh no, you want to grab them by the ankles and say, stay here. This is God's place. Don't, don't go. But, but on the other hand, you see, but I, I see your point. You need food. And so uh, there they go and they go off and they go to a place called Moab, which is a curious choice. Because always throughout the Old Testament, especially those books of <clears throat> Moses, Moab was a bad place. I mean, it had its origins in an inappropriate relationship between Lot, Abraham's nephew, and one of his daughters. So the Moabites sprung from. There was a king of Moab called Balak who summoned a prophet, Balaam, and he said, I want you to curse the Israelites. And it was the Moabite Moabite women, the Moabitess, the Moabitess, Moabite women who seduced Israelite men, not only sexually but also then to uh, um, worship the Moabite pagan gods. And even as we read through the Book of Judges, there was one uh, famous um, <clears throat> king of Moab. If you can't remember this one, ask if you have a junior high, middle school boy, he'll remember this story. Eglon, you're all thinking, oh, what was about? Read it, and you'll go, yeah, that would appeal to a junior high boy. 
Eglon, who, who, who conquered a portion of the Israelites and held them under his thumb for 18 years. And, and so you think, why Moab of all places? They, they worshipped pagan gods. It was close, so they were able to get there. But, but they went there because they heard that there was food. They seemed to disregard entirely the fact that this was a nation that was hostile towards Towards God, obviously, not everyone was a bad person. We found Orpah and Ruth to be quite accommodating, quite nice, and all of that. But still, if you went into Moab and you told a crude joke about the God of Israel, they'd laugh. They were hostile towards God. But here, these people of God find themselves, by their choice, in this foreign. This foreign land, you see. But notice then what happens. They go there for, it seems like a little while, sojourning. But then they remained there. They lived there. And in the midst of that, Elimelech dies. Nobody saw that coming. And in an agricultural patriarchal culture, when husband dies... The widow is very vulnerable. She had two sons. That was a good thing. And so you breathe a little sigh of relief and going, okay, two sons, they can, they can help her. But then they marry women from Moab. And you go, no, 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 you're not supposed to do that. I know that. But they did it. And, and then all of a sudden you feel vulnerable in the midst of that. Are they just imbibing in the culture? Are they really uh, just just settling in in such a degree that they're going to lose everything uh, about God? And and then the sons die. And see that coming. And the narrator lays this out in a subtle but profound way. Notice how he puts it in verse 5. And both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons. If you're reading this in ancient Israel, you say, she's lost her name. She's now just the woman. Not Naomi. She's now just the woman. She's that vulnerable. She's that now invisible. She has nothing. And you sort of die with them. But but then, in the sweetness and kindness of God, and it is God, verse 6, it says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had herds in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, she recognizes that the Lord did something. And if you're reading in most modern translations, the word Lord will have all the letters capitalized, which means it's the word Yahweh, which means it's the covenant name for God. It's the personal name for God. You get the sense that she's rethinking and she realizes, oh, I remember now. I remember now. Famine, repent, harvest, blessing. I'll go back. I remember the promise. Oh, when, I, when, I came, when I came here to Moab, I, I, I forgot the promise. All I could see was the food. And then that seemed like, oh, that'll take care of it. I, I can solve this problem. I'll go where the food is. I'll leave the promise, but go where the food is. Now she's thinking, I'll go where the promise is. I, I see it now. And it could be in her misery that 
she was led to this repentance by the Holy Spirit. Remember, we read a verse recently from Psalm 119. Uh, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I know your word. It's that sense, you see. Or what we have in Romans chapter 2. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Oh, how kind of him. Not to send her back to Bethlehem when there was still no food, but to say, no, 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 no. I, I'll st- I really will supply your needs. You came here to get your needs supplied. You left Bethlehem saying that you were full and now you're empty. Well, now in your emptiness, come back to where there's fullness. I can't help but think, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we think we're full or empty, when we know we're empty, ah, that's the gateway to fullness. Because that's the gateway to trust. And trust is the gateway to God. And so here we find them. But it's remarkable that that in her desire to return, the daughters-in-law are returning as well. And, And here's where we have to catch the narrator. And sometimes it's hard in our English versions, but uh, many of them now are are actually translating this uh, boringly. And by that I mean, in verses beginning with verse whatever it is, six on, the word return is used 12 times. Now, if you're writing a paper for your English professor and you use the same word 12 times in like a half a page, you're not going to do very well. But if you're telling a story, to be listened to, and you want someone to get it, you're going to use the word and use the word and use the word. And that's what the narrator is doing. He uses return. Verse 6, then they returned. Verse 7, on the way to return. Verse 8, Naomi says, go return. Verse 9, or I'm sorry, verse 10, and they said to her, no, we will return. Verse 11, Naomi says, so no, turn back. Verse 12, turn back. Uh, and on and on. And so this word returning. And what's important for us to realize is that this is the Old Testament word for repentance. That word that says, I see that I've been wrong. I've seen I've gone the wrong way. I see that I've gone against God and I realize the misery of it. And now I realize I should hate that way. And thus I'll turn back to God. So this whole section is about returning. It's all about repentance. It's no surprise that when Jesus uh, arrived on the scene, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said, listen, you've got to change everything. You've got got to understand this all differently. You're you're thinking that you can do this on your own. You're thinking that you can make your own way. You're you're thinking that you have all the wisdom you need. No, 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 no. To turn away from all of that, that's all wrong. Now come listen to me. Trust me. You see? And so Naomi is repenting. Naomi's returning. But again, fascinating. Orpah and Ruth, her daughters-in-law, want to return with her. And she pleads them not to. She says, no, no, return home. Don't return with me. Turn back. Go back to Moab. So, so they start out together and somewhere between Moab and Bethlehem, uh, they have this conversation. And, and, and the daughters-in-law uh, come to her and says, no, we're going with you. And Ruth says, no, 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 go back. Why would she do that? Why would she say, go back? Well, on the one hand, still, bless her heart, 
She has no category in her brain for how they could ever survive back in Bethlehem. That's not their home. It's Naomi's home, but it's not their home. So she says, she says, go back. I can't help you anymore. In that culture, what they needed were husbands. And in that culture, the culture that Naomi knew back in Bethlehem, she knew that there was a possibility that there would be one, even a brother who would marry her and perhaps even give her more children. But she said, I'm too old for that. And even if I could have more children, you'd be too old for them. Do the math. Go home. Find husbands. Live your life. Now Orpah said, that makes sense. But Ruth clung to her. Now it's a good thing, I suppose, that it was Orpah that went back and Ruth not, or unless we'd have a bunch of Orpahs running around instead of Ruth's. Pardon for anybody whose name is Orpah. But Ruth stayed now. Why? Why did Ruth stay with Naomi and not go back? Why did she? Was it because she loved her mother-in-law? She certainly did. From every indication, we can find that she, she clearly loved Naomi and, and desired this, this relationship to be ongoing. But it really was more than that. And the narrator makes it perfectly clear that it was more than that. Because the language that he used is what we call covenantal language. Not necessarily covenantal between people necessarily, but covenant between people and God. She uses a couple of expressions. One is this word cling. Now we know it. From Genesis 2 that we use in marriage that a man should leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, cling to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. She clings to her. And there's this sense of loyalty. But then she comes down to the real reason, verse 15. And she, that is, Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and, and to her gods. But Ruth said to her, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do to me, and more so, and more also, if anything but death departs me from you. She was using this covenantal formula that God used all the time. When God referred to his people, he said, You are my people, and I am your God. He said, in this covenant, you will be my people and I will be your God. Somehow, perhaps through the testimony of Ruth or Elimelech, probably, I'm sorry, Naomi or Elimelech, probably Naomi, she learned this language. And she said, no, no, no. I'm leaving everything behind. I'm leaving everything that I once held dear. I'm leaving everything that I thought would be my life I thought that I'm leaving everything behind that I thought would really satisfy me. But I realized that can't be true in Moab. No matter how many husbands I get, no matter how many children I have, no matter how much land I acquire in Moab, it all leads to the same thing. It all leads to death. And so now I'm going to leave all that I see and all that, in a sense, if you will, makes sense to me. All that I've been taught to live that way. And, and now I see and I'm going to go back And I'm going to live on a promise, on a word, on the promise of God to be with his people and to give them life. Don't send me back. 
I won't go. What's fascinating is Ruth had no idea what to say at that point. She was just quiet. And they went on their way. This sense, you see, of repentance, this sense of, I see it. You see, when we think about repenting and conversion, uh, uh, Ruth illustrates that for us so nicely. I mean, if you tell this story to yourself over and over again and allow it to, to sink in, you realize, oh, I, I, think, I think I get what it must mean to come to faith in Jesus. We have a whole new identity. I leave all of that behind that I once thought was life that I once thought would satisfy, that I once thought was everything. And I realized, no, I must go this way and trust in Christ. All that he says is true. See, for Ruth, it would be an entirely different land, an entirely different identity. Now, for us, we don't have to change location. It's not about geography anymore. It isn't about where God dwells or doesn't dwell or any of that. Uh, we can stay uh, wherever we are, wherever we find ourselves in coming to faith. That's not the point. But the point is that everything changes. How I understand myself, how I understand my people, how I understand the life that I'm to live, how I understand that all of that was wrong, all of that was sinful, all of that was against the Lord. And we, we can see it, can't we? We can see it as people come to Jesus. We can see that rich young man as he comes to Jesus. And he has all his possessions. But he doesn't begin there. He, he begins with asking the question of Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, Jesus says, well, obey the law. And oddly enough, the man says, I've done that. Get a sense that Jesus smiles. So, all right, sell everything that you have and come and follow me. See, the man didn't realize that following after God meant following after God and nothing else. And he didn't realize that his own life was wrapped around all his own ambitions, all his own thoughts, all his own wisdom, all his own stuff. He said, I can't give that up. That's still right to me. That's still life to me. Whereas Ruth could say, oh no, that's death. And this is life. It was sort of like the people who were traveling with Jesus on one occasion. Remember, there was a bunch of people, thousands of them following Jesus and they were hungry. And so Jesus fed them miraculously just with a little bit of fish, and a little bit of bread. And, and they were filled and satisfied. So they wanted to make him king. Sort of a fish sandwich in every pot kind of thing. And Jesus withdrew from them and they continued to follow him. And so then he said, well, let me tell you what I'm really after. What I'm really after is that you have to believe in me and follow me and trust in me. And many went away. Many went away like, like Orpah did. Uh, okay, I, I see the food, I see the place, I see the husband that could be there for me, so I'll go there. But Ruth saw something else as the Apostle Peter saw something else. Jesus said to his disciples, you're going to go with him. And remember what Peter says, he says, how can we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
All they had from Jesus were these words, these promises. We'll go with you. We'll forsake all of that that's back there and we'll come and follow you. That's what Ruth did. And then they finally get back to Bethlehem and and Ruth describes her situation. They said, is this Naomi? And she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara because Naomi means pleasant and Mara means bitter. And she said, my experience has been so, so bitter. I went away full, not full of food, but full of family. And now I've come away empty. You know, at that moment you start thinking, especially if you know how the story ends. Ruth, I mean, Naomi, your emptiness will lead to your fullness. But once you turn aside this, once you see that you are poor in spirit, then your life shall begin. It's fascinating that the narrator uh, bookends this particular section of the story with a famine and a harvest. And you start thinking, what's that mean? Well, we'll get to that next time. Let's pray. Father, mm, pray in the week that's ahead of us that this story will play in our minds. I pray that our lives will ping against it in some ways. And it will greet us and we'll ask the question, have I repented? Really? Or of what must I still repent? Or of what must I continue to repent? These things that come all the time. Where am I being sucked into, depend upon my own strength, my own wisdom, my own goodness, my own situation, my own country, my own family, my own skills? my own place, all the stuff I have, my retirement accounts, my health. Where am I really trusting all of that and not trusting you? And where must I submit and trust and follow? Where must I repent? Give us a great desire of God to be as clinging to you as Ruth was to Naomi. May our hearts longing be that your people would be our people, that you would be our God, and that we would know that and that we would follow you. So please be with us and and enable us, God, in your kindness to see that our weakness needs needs to strength, our emptiness to fullness.
And what we, by way of your cross, put to death our sin. That we can turn and live and know real life. Please, bless us. The awareness, the consciousness, the assurance that we belong to you, that we are yours in such a way that nothing can separate us from you. And that in you, regardless of circumstance, we're safe, we're protected, we're provided for, that you have all this worked out, the day will come and we'll see it. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. <clears throat>